there is an internet company that sells a vast array of frog paraphernalia. They offer frog slippers, frog staplers, frog bath mats, plush frog pillows, frog sticky notepads, frog luggage, frog duffel bags, frog car mats, frog shower curtains, and the list goes on and on and on. That's so much frog stuff, it makes you want to croak. <laughs> and that's how the Pharaoh felt when he refused to allow Israel to go free. He wanted to croak. He had gotten his fill of frogs. For after God turned the water of the Nile into blood, the first plague, Instead of cooperating with Moses, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You saw how stubborn he was in the movie. And he caused God to bring about a second plague, a proliferation of frogs. And so with the frogs in mind, let's leap right into chapter 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. Remember the Egyptian goddess Hecht was personified as a frog. And frogs came from the flooding of the Nile and they were a symbol of prosperity. In Egypt, if you kissed a frog, you got a princess, not a prince. This idol, this false goddess Hecht. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house into your bedroom, on your bed. Imagine climbing into bed at night and there being frogs between the covers. Into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Frogs, frogs, everywhere frogs. Notice God is mocking their beliefs. He's mocking their false goddess, Hecht. He's saying to them, if you want to worship frogs, then here have a few. Here's a description of the conditions that this plague would have created. One author writes, like a blanket of filth, the slimy wet monstrosities covered the land until men sickened at the continued squashing crunch they were forced to walk on. If a man's feet slipped on the greasy mass of their crushed bodies, he fell into an indescribably offensive mass of putrid uncleanness. And when he sought water to cleanse himself, the water was so solid with frogs, he got no cleansing there. Imagine, everywhere you turn, frogs. Imagine jumping on your, you're sitting there on your bed getting ready to go to bed at night. You're putting on your pajamas and frogs suddenly jump on you. You lie down in the bed, they're jumping on your body and on your face and all while you try to sleep. You're sitting down at the dinner table for dinner and frogs are jumping on top of the table. Imagine driving your chariot down the street and the street is so thick with these green frogs, green slush, that the tires on your chariot just sort of bog down in the mush. You have to get towed. You just have to call and get towed. Imagine that. I'm telling you, the Egyptians must have felt like they were going to croak. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Now notice that. The, the magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt, they, they also try to duplicate the miracle and they succeed. But notice, they only make matters worse. They produce more frogs. You'd think if they were doing the people a favor, they would miraculously remove the frogs. But no, all they're able to do is produce more frogs. And let it be known, that is Satan's specialty. Guys, his solutions only add to your misery. His power only compounds the problems, trust me. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, and he, and he probably said this with a, with a frog in his throat, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants, and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. And so he said, tomorrow. Moses is so excited. The Pharaoh is going to let the people go that, that he allows the Pharaoh to even pick his prayer time when he's going to pray to remove this plague. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. It looks like these frogs have forced the Pharaoh now to capitulate, to submit to God, to let the people go. But don't be so sure. Verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought up against Pharaoh. And so the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And that stank even worse. Pharaoh reneges and sets himself up for a third plague. Verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Plague three was not nice. It was a plague of lice. Nasty, itchy, blood-sucking lice. I mean, just reading chapter 8 makes you want to kind of scratch your head a little bit, you know. Lice were everywhere. This was one lousy predicament for these Egyptians, that's for sure. And this was not just head lice. They were covered with lice from head to toe. It's interesting, the Greek historian Herodotus, he makes the point that the priests of Egypt were particularly concerned about lice. To them, this was the ultimate example of uncleanness. And it would disqualify them from participating in any religious rituals or prayers or, or rites. 
In other words, this plague made it impossible for these pagan priests to worship their gods or to even cry out to their gods for help. They couldn't pray to their gods to remove the lice because they had lice. And when you had lice, you couldn't pray. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? We're told more about these priests. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, Hey, this is the finger of God. At this plague, they were stumped. They had duplicated the water to blood. They had duplicated to the, pro- the frogs. Satan does have power, but he's not all powerful. And he's certainly not as powerful as God. And here they get stumped with the lice. They can't repeat the miracle. They toss in the towel. And these priests realize they are no match for the one true God, the God of the Hebrews. Suddenly, these magicians, these sorcerers become believers in the true God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's a bit more stubborn. He's obviously one tough nut to crack. The fourth plague is a plague of flies. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. It's interesting, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it renders this word flies as dog flies. Now the dog fly was something a lot more dangerous than your common garden variety fly. The dog fly was a bloodsucker that carried vile diseases and caused blindness. I think this plague was a lot more than just a few gnats, you know, hovering around your nose or the flies that you'd find at the family picnic over at Stone Mountain. These were toxic, dangerous flies. This was an airborne blight that came upon Egypt. Also interesting, the Hebrew word that's translated swarms here is literally it means mixture. And it could imply that this plague was a a whole variety of different types of insects. Not just flies, but all kinds of insects. In fact, Chuck Swindoll, he paints this picture. Big flying beetles, spiders dropping off the ceiling, fleas hopping all over you, ticks burrowing into your skin. Tiny chiggers crawling under your clothes. Bees stinging you. Imagine these swarms of insects, you know, all around you. The Egyptians were surrounded by trillions of creepy crawlers. It was creepy. I'm sure this bugged the daylights out of them. (laughs) Verse 12. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, The Hebrews lived in Goshen, remember. That no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. 
The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Remember in the New Testament, Satan goes by the name Beelzebub. And it means Lord of the flies. Egypt had sold its soul to Satan. And that's why God here gives the land over to these devastating swarms of flies. If you want to worship the Lord of the flies, well then here are a few flies for you. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. Pharaoh wanted the Hebrews to make sacrifice to God, but to do it in Egypt. Moses objects for good reason. He says, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. The Egyptians considered livestock to be sacred. They worshipped cows and bulls and livestock. And so, if the Hebrews had sacrificed these animals in Egypt, they would be sacrificing what the Egyptians worshipped. That wouldn't win them a whole lot of favor in the eyes of their neighbors. Thus Moses says to Pharaoh, If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He will command us. And Pharaoh said, I will not let you go. But you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He'd already been double-crossed once with the frogs. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. He does it to them again. Chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. There will be a very severe pestilence. The fifth plague to befall Egypt is mad cow disease. That's what it was. It's interesting that the most sacred of all Egyptian deities was the bull. In the temple to Ta, P-T-A-H, one of the Egyptian gods, this temple to Ta was in Memphis. There they kept an actual bull that they considered to be a literal god. They considered Ta's bull to be a sacred animal. It was called the Apis bull. And when one died off, another one was selected as its replacement. And this apis bull, considered to be a deity, was fed all kinds of delicacies. Had a herd of heifers at his disposal. He got royal treatment. They had bullfights in his honor. The god of apis, or ta. There was another goddess among the Egyptians, the goddess of Hafor, who was personified as a cow. She was often depicted suckling the Pharaoh, giving him nourishment. And yet none of these so-called gods could withstand the fifth plague. Pestilence, blight, 
fell upon all of the livestock, all of the cows, all of the bulls, all of those animals that the Egyptians worshipped. It proved once and for all that their idol worship was nothing but bull. The only Egyptians happy after the fifth plague were the owners of Chick-fil-A. Eat more chicken. Verse 4. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Egyptian livestock will die, but Hebrew livestock will be protected. And this would prove that the disease wasn't just a random pestilence. But it was a plague directly specified by God to pry his people from the Egyptians and from this hard-hearted Pharaoh. Verse 5, Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the children of Israel not one died. There was no collateral damage in essence. God had other plans for the livestock of Israel. Their herds would provide the sacrifices that the people would use to worship God once they had left Egypt. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of the Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. The sixth plague is a plague of boils. Verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace. And let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. And it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses scattered them toward heaven. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. Now some commentators believe that Moses had crashed a pagan ceremony where the Egyptians were actually sacrificing to their gods, pleading to their deities to ward off these terrible plagues. And Moses goes up to the altar and he grabs some of the ashes off of their own pagan altar And he tosses them up into the air. And the ashes of their sacred sacrifices produce the boils that plague their bodies, both man and beast. Obviously, their entreaties were nothing but worthless prayers to phony gods. And the boils on the priest had the same effect as the lice. It made them unclean and unable to pray to their gods. They had the boils, but they couldn't even pray for relief because their boils made them unclean. Again, it was a humiliating defeat for this false god and its priests. It's also interesting, the Hebrew word boil means to burn. And it probably referred to some kind of painful, swelling, pus-filled inflammation that that would cause a burning, an itching sensation. Kind of like what you get when you get a severe sunburn. Imagine yourself with a severe sunburn all over your body. It's interesting, the Egyptian god Imhotep was considered the god of medicine. And this plague was a direct attack against him. The priest may have been praying to him when Moses grabbed the ashes off the altar and tossed them into the clouds. Obviously, he was no help at all to them, though, 
another Egyptian deity gets trounced by God. Verse 12 tells us, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, up until now, it's been Pharaoh who has been hardening his heart. But notice now, God hardens the Pharaoh's heart. You see, if God hadn't have hardened the Pharaoh's heart here, he would have let the Hebrews go just to escape the plagues. In other words, the, the Pharaoh would have gotten off the hook without really learning the lesson that God was trying to teach him. And God is going to keep the pressure on the Pharaoh until he admits what God wants to hear come from his lips, that the God of the Hebrews is the one true God. God is going to keep the pressure on him until he surrenders his will. He's going to harden his heart in order to bend a stiff neck. That's what's going to happen. He doesn't just settle for half-hearted confessions. God wants us to completely surrender to him. You know, too many folks today are like the Pharaoh. Oh, they'll do just enough to keep God off their back. You know, just enough to kind of get rid of the consequences of their sin. You know, you know just enough to escape God's judgment. That's all they want to do. But not enough to bow their knee to the authority of God. Well, sometimes God keeps the pressure on a person until they not only break their back, but until they bend their knee and submit and surrender to His will. With this sixth plague, we begin to realize that it's no longer the Pharaoh holding the Hebrews in bondage. Now it's God holding the Pharaoh in bondage. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The Pharaoh is being told that this whole ordeal is not about his power. It's not about his power to hold the Hebrews. Rather, it's about God's power. He is just a stagehand. He is just a supporting actor in a demonstration of God's awesome power. Verse 17. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. And the seventh plague is a plague of hail. In my opinion, they've all been. They've all been hail. This plague is literally hailstones from heaven. Monday night, Mac had a hockey game up in, uh, where's that place we went? Alpharetta, coming, up and coming. And we were driving home when it started to hail. Maybe you got caught in that hailstorm Monday night, but it was amazing. I'm, I'm talking about marble-sized hailstones were just pounding the street, pounding the hood of our car, and, and hitting the wind. It was kind of spooky. Those were just marble-sized hailstones. The hailstone that hit Egypt, it was lethal. Verse 19 Therefore, sin now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, 
For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of the Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Notice by this point, some of Pharaoh's own servants have become believers. I mean, they've seen enough already. They've concluded they're going to jump on God's bandwagon. They've concluded that the God of the Hebrews is the true God. They fear His word. They cooperate. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And so there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so very, he- so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Imagine a hailstorm mixed with lightning, ice balls piercing rooftops, ground fire sparked by this flashing lightning strikes. And remember, all of the convertibles, all of the chariots were convertibles, remember. I mean, if this hit in rush hour traffic, Rather than be protected by your roof, you'd just be pounded. You'd be a wide-open target for these hailstones. In Egypt, the goddess Nut, no kidding, Nut, N-U-T, was the ruler of the sky. And here, God cracks another nut. I mean, he's proving here that the whole idolatrous system that they had worshipped was nutty and deserving of all of this Punishment. Punishment. And remember how the Hebrews will later punish blasphemy? You remember how the the punishment for blasphemy in the the Old Testament? It was stoning. Isn't that interesting? God rains down hailstones on the people. It, It was God's way of throwing rocks, throwing stones at the Egyptians for their blasphemy for having worshipped these false gods. And the hail struck throughout all the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. God showed His power and His protection at the same time. Now understand, there's not only a historical fulfillment to these ten plagues that God God brought on the Egyptians, But this is also a prophetic foreshadowing. For in the last days, God will again pour out His judgment on this wicked world and its ruler, another Pharaoh, a man by the name of the Antichrist. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist. And the ten plagues that we see in the Exodus all have parallels that occur in the Great Tribulation. You remember we're told in Revelation about a hundred pound hailstones that come and beat down upon the earth. It also talks about plagues of locusts and boils. Three frogs appear. Darkness. Rivers are turned to blood. And the list goes on and on. Remember also in the Great Tribulation there are two witnesses. Two Jewish witnesses. There will be a Moses and an Aaron who will testify of God's truth. In the Tribulation people will harden their hearts too. Just like the Pharaoh did. 
Satan will work counterfeit miracles, just like his magicians did. The world again will be judged. The Jews will also be protected. And, and the parallels just go on and on. They're numerous. It's interesting. Well, verse 27, back to our story. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering in hell, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not fear the Lord God. Moses, by this point, knows Pharaoh's heart. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head, and the flax was in bud. It was almost time for harvest. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they were late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. This time he hardens his own heart. And so the heart of the Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Chapter 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt. And my signs, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Notice God's miracles were not just for the Egyptians, but they were also demonstrations to the Hebrews. And the Hebrews needed to see God's power. It's interesting, when Joshua, later, later down the line, when Joshua brings the second generation into the land of Canaan, he makes this comment. He says, Fear the Lord... Serve Him in sincerity and in truth and put away... Now, he says this to the Hebrews. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Serve Jehovah. This is a shocking passage to me. It means that the Israelites were not guiltless. Believe it or not, while they were in Egypt... They betrayed God and they worshiped the false gods of their Egyptian oppressors. They worshiped the false deities of Egypt along with the Egyptians. These plagues were done not just to break the stiff neck of Pharaoh. They were also done to soften the hearts of God's own people. And to win back the hearts of the Hebrews to truly worship God. We, we often... We think, boy, why in the world would anybody worship the God of your taskmaster? Worship someone who had you in slavery. Worship someone who held you in bondage. But isn't that what all sin is about? You know, we end up worshiping. We end up fi being fixated on that very vice, that very sin that's holding us in bondage. That's enslaving our lives. That's robbing us of the joy and the peace and the glory of God in our lives. We, too, need to be won back to God through the power of His mighty hand. Verse 3. 
So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. Now a locust is an insect about the size of a grasshopper about three inches long, and they travel in swarms that literally blanket the ground before them, sometimes four to five inches thick. They travel at night, and they eat every single blade of green vegetation that they pass over. A locust eats its own body weight every single day. Imagine, it eats its own body weight every 24 hours, that would be like me eating 160 pounds of food in a single day. It would be amazing. Locust swarms can cover 400 square miles. Imagine 100 to 200 million locusts per square mile over an area of 400 square miles. Boy, that's a, you'd name that town Locust Grove or something. And, and that wasn't really funny. I just threw that in. In addition, a locust's wings flutter nonstop for 17 hours straight. Imagine that. They're able to travel 60 miles a day. A plague of locusts can completely devastate a nation's food supply. And this is what Moses tells Pharaoh is about to come down. Verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? It's what we saw in the movie. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? I mean, they're, they're thinking a swarm of locusts, man, that, that could completely devastate what's left of our country. And so Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are, that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. We're going to take everybody, bud. But then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. In verse 7, his advisors told Pharaoh to release the men only. And it seems that Pharaoh might have allowed the adults to leave, but he wasn't going to let the children leave. For if the kids also left, then the adults would never come back. He says, not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. The Pharaoh is a man full of ambivalence. That's what's going on here. He doesn't really know what he wants to do. He wants these plagues out of his hair, so to speak. He's willing to make a few concessions. Oh, the adults can go, but the kids can't go. But he can't stand to admit the fact that he's been defeated by the God of these slaves. And so here he's calling for a little compromise. But 
seems at this point God and Moses have the upper hand. They're not really in the mood to compromise. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on all the land of, at all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hell had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. The Egyptian gods of Isis and Seth were believed to be the protectors of Egypt's crops. Again, God is making a point that these false gods are totally impotent. Verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. God knows that Pharaoh is just squirming. God wants him to be broken. God wants him to be humbled. Not just squirming, but broken. God's not through with him yet. The ninth plague is a blight of darkness. In other words, God turns out the lights on Egypt. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. That's dark. It's so dark, he says. It'll be so dark that you'll feel the darkness. The darkness will just sort of crawl around you. You know, like a blanket. Pitch black is what we sometimes call it. No moon, no stars, no parking lot lights from Walmart. No natural light, no ambient light. It'll just be darker than dark for three days. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Apparently it was too dark to even light a fire. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And what the source of that light was, we don't know. But it could have been the glory of God shining in the camp of the Hebrews. The most revered of all the Egyptian gods was Ra, who was the sun god. In fact, the name for later pharaohs, Ramesses, comes from the word Ra. And this darkness was an attack on the God of Ra in his power. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. <laughs> you know, again, he's giving in. 
Okay, you want to take your little ones, go ahead, but leave your cattle. Leave, you know, leave Spot and Rover and leave your dogs and cats too, you know. Just we want to make sure you come back. And he's given in as if God is willing to negotiate. I'm telling you now, God's got the upper hand by this point. God isn't about ready to negotiate. He goes on, but Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. What's the point of being free if we don't have what we need to worship God? That's his point. For guys, God frees us to make us worshipers. God frees us so we can know Him, so that we can spend time with Him, so that we can dwell in His presence and get to know Him and become like Him and let Him dwell in us and radiate from our lives. That's the point of our freedom to begin with. Here's a vital lesson. Like Moses, we don't know. I like what he says. He says, you know, let us take these, these livestock, let us take everything with us because we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. We don't know what it's going to take, so we need to take everything we can. That's what he's saying. And I like that. Because like Moses, we don't really know what it's going to take for us to serve the Lord until we get to the place that God has for us. So, take as much with you as possible. Take as many gifts as God might grant you. Take as many experiences in ministry. Take as much Bible knowledge as you possibly can obtain. You know, and oft, oftentimes an opportunity comes along that, that doesn't immediately interest us. Oh, well, what can I really learn from Genesis? What can I really learn from Exodus, you know? Why should I go to that Bible study tonight? And because we don't see the immediate relevance for our lives or for where we're at, we choose to avoid it. But who knows if that Bible study, if that experience for God, if that opportunity to serve God might not be invaluable to us in future situations. You know, maybe your desire is to be a pastor. And you're so busy studying the Word, you don't have time to get involved in Sunday school. You don't really have time to do any children's ministry. <laughs> but did you ever think when you become a pastor, you're going to have to start a Sunday school? You know, you're going to have to have some ministry working with kids, some experience working with kids. In other words, Moses says, we don't know what we're going to need to serve the Lord when we get there until we're there. And, and that's so true for us. That's why we need to take as much with us as possible, gain as many experiences, gain as much knowledge as we possibly can. We don't know if what we're learning right now won't be crucial three weeks from now, a month from now, when we're sharing with someone or when we're involved in a certain ministry. Well, verse 27 tells us, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. The Exodus is seen. Chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The spoils they receive are their back wages for 400 years of slavery. They're also in the materials that they'll use in the wilderness to build their tabernacle. Verse 13. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Isn't it interesting? Moses achieved far more notoriety as a servant of God than he ever did as a prince of Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? When he served the Lord, God honored him and raised him up. Then Moses said, and apparently said this to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, or all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. As God has explained to Moses in Exodus 4, Pharaoh had enslaved God's firstborn, Israel. And so God now will judge Pharaoh by judging his firstborn. Both the Pharaoh and his heir, his firstborn son, were considered by the Egyptians to be gods in their own right. And here is God, the true God's final assault on the religion of Egypt. He is going to strike the heir. He's going to strike the Egyptian god, the Pharaoh, and his firstborn. And Moses continues in verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The Lord makes a difference. Now it's interesting here. At first glance, there is no difference. As we pointed out, both the Egyptians and the Hebrews were guilty of idolatry. But the true God was on the side of the Hebrews. And it was His grace that made the difference. As it is with us. I'm a sinner just like the guy on the street. You're a sinner just like everybody else. We're all sinners. There's no room for any of us to be proud or to be haughty as if we're better than anybody else. No, the difference between us and the world boils down to one thing. And that's the grace of God. God's grace. God's mercy upon us. God is the one who makes a difference. Not our goodness, not our excellence, not our integrity. God is the one who makes the difference. God is greater than the gods of this world. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, Get out and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. In other words, after this tenth plague, all Egypt will beg the Hebrews to leave. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's stubbornness was God's opportunity to reveal his awesome power. And not only will Egypt learn of God here, so will the surrounding nations, as we'll learn later. And so Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Pharaoh's stubbornness is not only going to cost him his kingdom, but as we'll see next time, it will also cost him his son. 
And before you put up your Bible, wait a minute. Perhaps this is the most important thing I'm going to say all night. Let me ask you. What is your stubbornness costing you? It's already hurt you personally. But who else in your life is your stubbornness hurting you? Who else in your life is your stubbornness killing slowly? Is your stubbornness hurting? Is it your firstborn? Is it your thirdborn? Is it your grandson? Chances are it's somebody you love. Guys, we need to repent of our sin. We need to humble ourselves before God. Let Him have His way in our hearts. Well, there we'll end it for tonight. But next week we'll pick up, or next time we'll pick up in Exodus chapter 12. So read Exodus 12, 13, 14, and 15. Maybe we'll get all that done, maybe we won't, but you'll be prepared.